Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. The U.S. Department of Justice recently revised its guidelines for, quote, evaluation of corporate compliance programs, end quote. The guidance is intended to help prosecutors conducting investigations ask companies questions about their compliance programs and to help compliance professionals design and update those programs. The changes focus on ensuring that compliance programs aren't just point-in-time snapshots, but instead are dynamic and updated as circumstances change. The newest version includes more focus on identifying and managing third-party risk and ensuring that the compliance function is adequately resourced. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence sits down with Joseph Grundfest to discuss his perspective on the new guidelines and the implications for corporations. Professor Grunfest is senior faculty in the Rock Center for Corporate Governance at Stanford Law School. He's a nationally prominent expert on capital markets, corporate governance, and securities litigation. Let's listen in. First of all, Joe, it's a privilege, and it's great to have a conversation with you today, Joe, on a very important subject. Uh, What was the thinking behind the issuance of uh, this, or the reissuance of this guidance, and share with us, you know, certain perspectives and advice that uh, you think would be salient to companies? Sure. First thing to understand is when the Justice Department issues guidance, the guidance is intended for two audiences. First, people trying to comply. Second, the various U.S. attorneys around the United States. So the department is attempting to develop a coherent approach. They want to get all of the different U.S. attorneys on board, and they want companies that are interested in complying to understand what the appropriate policies are going to be. That's the organizational principle. And then if you actually look at the statements, um, what it boils down to is they focused on three fundamental questions. And and I think it makes sense to dilate separately on each of them. The first is, is the corporation's compliance program well-designed? David, let me ask you this. What does it mean to have a well-designed compliance program? And I'd uh, respond in accordance with the guidelines. Number one, have you accurately assessed the risks to your business? Have you figured out the ways to stay on top of those risks, reflecting changes of conditions? Three, have you figured out a way to educate your employees, your management, your supervisors, your compliance professionals, your legal staff, in terms of what those risks are? And have you figured out effective controls, policies, and procedures to respond to those risks? But I think that is the element here, is to figure out what you're exposed to, how you need to educate your workforce, how you need to implement controls, policies, and procedures. And of course, when things do occur, what happens next? You're exactly right. I think you've nailed it. And one way to really make this advice very practical for, you know, any GC or compliance person who just happens to be listening is your advisors, your law firms, whatever you, you know, consultants, they have standard playbooks. All right. They're off the shelf playbooks. All right. Start with that, but then pay a lot of attention to customizing the standard advice for your line of business. All right. Um, because on the one hand, if it's common practice to have guidelines around X, Y, and Z, you don't want the Justice Department coming around in hindsight and saying, well, everybody does X, Y, and Z, but you guys didn't. So, so you know, you've got to cover the basics that way. 
But if you just take an off-the-shelf program that isn't well designed to your particular situation, they're not going to give you credit for that either. So the practical advice that I actually give many corporations is, look, let's start with something off the shelf that's generic, and then let's tailor it for you. It has to be tailored for you, but that doesn't mean that you have to start by rewriting um, you know, these programs, reinventing the wheel and boiling the ocean. We can be intelligent and economically efficient. So the second point that government is focusing on is they ask, is the program being applied earnestly and in good faith? In other words, is the program adequately resourced and empowered to function effectively? What, what I think they mean there is, all right, you've got something on paper. That's great. But something that's on paper that isn't actually implemented is useless. And what they're asking in, in a practical matter is, is your budget big enough? Do you have enough staff? Is the staff appropriately trained? Are they appropriately empowered? When they have a problem, do people listen to them and do they act on the problem or are they ignored? Which, as a practical matter, is pretty close to their third point. Does the corporation's compliance program work in practice? Now, the irony of this third point is that if you ever get into trouble, you know that the program has not worked in practice in that particular instance. So the challenge then is to explain to the government that we have an excellent program. We're diligent in applying it. We missed this one, but you shouldn't blame us for missing this one. It's the kind of thing that a company trying to operate in good faith will reasonably miss. And so a program has to be designed with the notion of resiliency or anti-fragility and with the notion that things will happen and one must be able to respond in a timely way and in an appropriate way. It may be less a matter of we missed this one than it is our program was designed in such a way that when a miss occurs, we catch it early, we get our hands around it, and we act accordingly. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, this recapitulates conversations that you and I have had for, for years. Um, and, you know, the way I approach every compliance program uh, is a little bit like a, a fatal. It's constructive fatalism. That's my philosophy. Um, if you if you operate, for example, in China for a sufficiently long period of time, you will have an FCPA problem guaranteed. And the goal of a compliance program is number one, to maximize mean time to failure. In other words, to make sure that the amount of time between these failures is as long as possible. The second thing you wanna do is minimize the consequences of the failure. So when your program ultimately fails, it will be rare and the implications of the failure will be small and as manageable as possible. And third, you want to run the program so that when the failure happens, and hopefully it's small, everyone can look at it and go, there but for the grace of God go I. All right? I can't blame anyone for a problem like this coming up infrequently at this magnitude. You guys are doing okay. This is the kind of inevitable thing that eventually happens. 
Another way to put it is even the best of drivers, if you drive long enough, will have a fender bender. All right. And you shouldn't get bent out of shape if an excellent driver has the rare fender bender. Unfortunately, Joe, there is no insurance, at least that I know of, that covers companies for this. It covers DNO liabilities. Or, or, or given what's happening in the market now, if such insurance exists, the price has gone through the roof and the retentions have been raised significantly. I love the car analogy because they're the accidents where perhaps you sideswipe someone, they're the accidents where you drive head on into someone, and then there are instances where you're rear-ended. Let me just sort of take that apart with you a little bit. Um, companies who are investing in different countries and they're acquiring assets, they're acquiring people, they're also acquiring liabilities. And even with the best of diligence, I liken this to buying a home. You can have it inspected. You can have the walkthrough. But until you start living in a house, you don't necessarily know all the nuances and foibles and you know what really is not working. And maybe you can talk a little bit about this because it is the day-to-day operation of a company, but many companies are acquisitive. And how companies should be thinking about the acquisitions they're making, the investments they're making, if you're in the private equity world, very often you're putting people on the boards of uh, new portfolio companies. How would you sort of begin to advise those individuals about gauging the effective compliance programs and identifying issues? Well, you know, David, you're cutting close to the bone here. Uh, I'm chair of the audit committee at KKR. We did an investment in Brazil a few years ago, and we lost 100% of our equity investment. And we hired the best consultants in the world, and we spent a lot of money doing due diligence, and people swore up and down that there were no payments, there were no briberies, there were no issues, you know, with the company when we did the acquisition. And, you know, based on the money that we spent hiring the best consultants, we went ahead and we closed the deal. Well, not very long after we closed, a whistleblower comes to us and says, guess what? You bought a business that is uh, fundamentally based on bribery and corruption of senior officials. To which our response was, what? And they then showed us the records. And then we hired people. We did an investigation. It turns out the whistleblower was exactly right. We self-reported, all right, to, to the government. There's been no action, all right, against us at KKR. We did nothing wrong. Uh, as soon as, you know, we found out, we timely reported to the authorities. We lost all of our investment. We, we were a victim in that situation. And it taught, a, at least it taught me, a great deal about the limits of even the best due diligence. And, you know, what it boils down to is that there's certain geographies where you have an ineluctable risk. No amount of due diligence will ever take it down to zero. And it's the same thing with certain industries. So if you're going to be doing deals in certain geographies and or in certain industries, you're buying a certain amount of corruption risk that you can't take below some number. I don't know, 5%, 10%, whatever it is, but it's, it's a risk that you've got to take into account when you're doing the deal. So the, the, un, the unfortunate and ineluctable lesson of that experience is that there are certain geographies and there are certain industries where even if you have the best due diligence, 
you're still going to be at risk for a non-trivial percentage of transactions. And if you're operating in those geographies and those industries, that's, that's just simply the price of poker. You, you just have to be ready uh, on occasion to lose a tremendous amount uh, because there was a corruption risk that you did not find, even though you looked as best you could. We will be right back. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. To learn more about RAIN, go to www.rainnetwork.com slash join to become a member today. So, Joe, uh, you bring up another point. I'll draw on my experience from Goldman. I'll make it nonspecific. The way I always thought of this was you have to price in the risk that you will find things post-acquisition. And you also have to price in types of controls and policies and procedures and training and that type of thing that may be necessary post-closing. And I know that investment firms are very, very good at figuring out the investment model. They look just incredibly smart at looking at balance sheets and understanding economies of scale and what the potential ROI is in the market. But you're highlighting something which I think sometimes the market misses, which may not be a a simple question of do I go forward or not, or do I assume the risk or not, because it's very hard to to quantify, you know, those situations where you might, might have to write something down to the very bottom. But how do you begin to price that risk? into the deal? Well, there, you know, as you pointed out, there are certain transaction structures that are well suited to doing that. You can have escrows, you can have holdbacks. There, there, there are all sorts of techniques that can be used. But as a practical matter, if the problem is large enough, all right, you know, and the example that I used is a situation where basically you paid X for something that was worth a zero. If you've got a holdback of 10% or 15%, that doesn't solve the problem. You've got the other 80, you know, 85%, 90% uh, that's basically gone. So, so if the problem is sufficiently large, traditional contracting techniques will fail, right? Because they're generally deal, designed to deal with, um, you know, a challenge that's 10, 15, at most 20% of the acquisition price in my experience. Beyond that, you're just going to take the risk and you're going to have to form an opinion and it'll largely be subjective because, we lack a sufficient amount of data points to measure, you know, with real frequency, how often many of these situations come up. Joe, you've alluded to one of the functions of the guidelines being the messaging to the various U.S. attorneys across the country to help standardize the approaches to looking at companies, their behavior, their compliance programs, which inevitably link to charging decisions. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how discretion gets exercised and the importance of the ability to have a dialogue with regulators such as the SEC or the U.S. Attorney's Office about what a company has done in advance and when an event arises, the importance of timeliness in coming forward. Well, that's a great question, David, and there are many ways to answer it. Let me just suggest one approach, not to suggest that there there aren't others that are at least as good or perhaps even better. Often when you think about negotiations, you think about focal points, right, and comparables. 
And, and, you know, many negotiations with the U.S. attorney and the SEC operates exactly the same way. We go in and say, look, we're not as bad as X, Y, and Z, and therefore we should be treated better. Well, one hard thing to do is to say, well, okay, where do we have a set of comparables that we can rely on? And for purposes of this conversation, let's, let's take the best possible outcome, which is where you get a declination from the Department of Justice. In other words, they look at it and they say, you know, we're not going to go criminally after the corporation. The SEC won't go after the corporation, but you're going to have to do some other things and you have to have satisfied certain criteria. So we know that there are recently six examples of declinations and there's a pattern. And this pattern pretty much defines what you're going to have to do in order to get the best possible resolution for the entity. So the first thing that we know you got to do, and here, let me use, let me use as an example, the, the, the declination in the case of Cognizant in an FCPA matter. There, we know that they self-disclosed to the government within two weeks of a board, all right, meeting where they discussed the criminal conduct. All right. So the government wants prompt disclosure. We now know that there's a precedent that says within two weeks of a board presentation, that can be considered prompt. Here's what we don't know. How long did the general counsel and other people at the company know about this problem before they went to the board? We don't have that information. But what we do know is sooner is better if you actually want to get credit. Another reason why sooner is better is the government is operating a little bit of a prisoner's dilemma here. We have an environment where the whistleblower program that the SEC is running um, is giving very substantial rewards to whistleblowers who come in with valuable information. There was recently a $50 million payment, uh, and there are lots of people who would be thrilled to get $50 million to turn in you know, a company that they're working for where they believe the company is crooked. Um, if the whistleblower gets to the government before you do, your ability to get credit for voluntary prompt self-disclosure diminishes precipitously. So the question about self-disclosure to get yourself a declination um, is much more fraught today than it was perhaps five, ten years ago. Um, David, I know you have experience in these situations as well. What what are you perceiving in your conversations with clients? So, Joe, I'd actually love to do a little role play with you, okay? And um, maybe you can be the general counsel, and I will uh, be the either chair of the audit committee or whatever committee there is on the board. And I'd like to ask you a few questions. So, why don't you? come to me with a particular situation. And I think it'd be helpful for the audience to hear a little bit of back and forth between you and myself about the types of questions on a pragmatic level that get asked within a, within a company. And I think there'll be some insightful, we'll call it uh, bits of advice here uh, around a couple of real politic and very, very pragmatic situations that will be helpful to organizations to simplify, I'll use your term, the process of figuring out what would be the next steps and why. 
Sure. And, and what I'll do is I'll, I'll respond with a situation that has profound ambiguity and where there is no clear answer. Excellent. Perfect. Um, it's easy for me to be profoundly ambiguous. Well, it's, it's also the way the world works. <laughs> it's the way the world works. So go ahead, Joe. Report to me. You've asked for a half hour of my time. Okay, so we have a situation, whether it's, you know, in the Middle East or the Philippines or somewhere in Africa or China, where we've discovered millions of dollars of payments to consultants, and we can't even verify the existence of the organizations to which these payments are going. All right, our internal audit group went out, uh, they had a look at these payments, and they can't find corresponding recipients at these addresses and we can't figure out what this money is going to. Right? So there you go. That's what I've just told you. What do you ask me? Okay, Joe, are you are you certain this has been going on? Yes. In fact, we can, you know, here are the checks, here are the payments, here are the wires, and uh there, you know, we've looked at five hundred and thirty-six transactions. There are forty-two that we can't line up. We've hired investigators and they have no idea where these payments went, and they total $5 million. Joe, is this, what do you suspect was going on here? Well, there are multiple possibilities, all right? One possibility is we are the victims of embezzlement, that some of our employees are actually stealing money from us by sending it to, you know, phony accounts for consulting services. All right. And, you know, there's no bribery that's going on, you know, one way or another, and they're stealing money from us. The other possibility is this money is is sort of, you know, dropping into a black hole and winding up in the pocket of some minister in a ministry with whom we're negotiating for a contract. Right now, we don't know. Well, what do we know, Joe? I know you said we hired investigators. Have people been interviewed? Um, has there been any further information here? We have interviewed all the people that are involved with the wires and the other transactions on our end, and everybody says that they were simply following instructions, and to the best of their knowledge, it was for the consulting services that were described. So somebody is lying to us, all right? There are eight possibilities, and we don't know whom. And so... Tell me, beyond hiring some investigators, what are you what are you advising the board to do here? Well, obviously, continuing the investigation to get the best possible result. That's one possibility. And I think we're at a stage, given the size of given the nature of the geography and given the amount of money that's involved, we might want to consider self-reporting. I can see the argument that it's premature. I can also see the argument that this is a an appropriate time at which to do that self-reporting, given potential consequences down the road. But Joe, what, what does this self-reporting mean? Does it mean all of a sudden the FBI is going to be in our offices? They're going to be subpoenas? Well, that's a great question. Let me explain. Let me explain the range of possible outcomes, and I can't guarantee what'll happen. That. We would pick up the phone, we'll call our contacts at the local U.S. attorney's office. We will tell them everything that I just told you. We will give them all of the information that we have. We will hold back absolutely nothing. We will promise to continue the investigation because we need to get to the bottom of this too, because whether it's embezzlement 
or whether it's illegal bribery, we don't want this going on and we want to put to a, a stop to it. Among the risks we have is that once we report this to the government, the government will take over the investigation, they will deputize all of our resources, and they'll ask us to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars over two or three years investigating things that we think are unreasonable, but we won't be able to say no because the government will then say we're no longer cooperating. So the risk that we run is that by self-reporting at this stage, we lose control of our ability to manage the inquiry. On the other hand, if we don't go in, a whistleblower could beat us, or we miss the opportunity to solve the problem for, you know, for ourselves and to get full, full credit for cooperation. Joe, do we have any idea who this whistleblower could be? Can we find out who it is? Uh, whistleblowers are able to be entirely confidential to the SEC. And if there's going to be a whistleblower, it's most likely one of the eight people that we think have knowledge of what went on here. And we would assume that one of the eight has lied. We just don't know which one, or at least one of the eight has lied. Great conversation, Joe, to be continued. Don't miss part two of this podcast in which David and Joe role play with the general counsel and the chair of the audit committee discussing new guidelines and how they might apply in different contingencies. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you like what you heard today and would like to learn more about RAIN, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a member today. Thanks. Listen.